when I was 17 and I was in my university, first university degree undergrad. And I took that summer and traveled with an organization to central Guatemala. And we spent two months together. Um, I was young, awake, very precocious and wanted to figure out the purpose and meaning of my life. (laughs) I thought I would figure it out. So I put my hand up to go and experience a different part of the world to see what what could be awakened. And I met a mentor there. His name is David Skeen. And David, oh, I told him, David, I'm impatient. I really want to ensure that I'm using my life to the best way. So there was this um, um, implicit generative zeal in me, right? I, I really came into this world having a sense that this was all gift and I really need to get on with it. Some might call it ambition. I had a sense of, of creative urgency, probably, right? That there's lots to see, lots of pieces for me to put together. David slowed me down at the tender age of 17 or so <laughs> and, and said to me, you know, I can see, I can see, Danielle Ayana, that you you're curious about passion. Passion is what the world gives to you that lights you up that you really want to name your purpose. What will you contribute to the world and give back to the world? And he said, but remember, there's a third P and that's the P of pain. You have to pay attention to what breaks your heart open because that will be the source from which whatever actions you choose to give to the world will be sustainable and be truly, truly from a heart place. So that was a very profound lesson at a young age that has caused me to take a constructive beat, you know, every now and again, as I stay awake with purpose and passion and hunger for life, but then also deeply connected to what is breaking my heart open that um, commands my response, my engagement. Welcome to the only podcast that will bring you more alive while you smash the patriarchy. Join me, Sam Wilde, aka The Fertile Feminist, every week as we shift the paradigm, reclaim our native fertility, and create together the version of ourselves that brings forth our heart's desires and changes the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy that we're together and this is a super treat. Today's episode is fantastic, invigorating, fascinating, enlivening, and full of passion. So I'm really delighted that you're here for it. I'm going to tell you about it in a second. But first, just my big thank yous for subscribing or following me, I guess is the right word to use for following me. That's so important for sharing the podcast with others, which I know you're doing, and for being such devoted listeners. And that's why I'm so happy that um, you're giving me so much love uh, listening. And I can give you love today listening to the Reverend Dr. Danielle Ayana James, who I went to Yale University with uh, many moons ago. And there is so much I want to tell you about this person. Uh, First, let's say she's a self-declared yes to life fanatic, which I mean, come on, we already love that, right? That is the essence, the heart of fertility is that yes to life. On the professional side, she works professionally in, with leadership at a company called Strad. You can find it at strad.co because she is a Canadian. 
Um, but she also does coaching and mentorship on her own with monogram leadership. She has a she's degrees from McMaster University, Yale University, McCormick Theological Seminary. I think she's a member. I know she's a member of the International Coaching Federation. She's an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ, and she is verdant and eternally blooming, which is a phrase that will become very important in our conversation. We're going to drop into this conversation, and and interestingly, it starts with a conversation about her name. And that's because when I went to school with her those many moons ago, I only knew her as Danielle. So it becomes relevant and even more powerful when you know uh, the definition or the meaning, symbolic meaning of her middle name, Ayana, which was not how I referred to her, but I feel like is um, her movement into being this uh, powerful, fertile feminist. So enjoy every second of this okay we're gonna drop right in we're gonna hear her uh start us off in a conversation about the name and the power of names i try i try to pair both my names as much as possible you know my mother named me danielle because daniel was her favorite book in the bible her favorite character for daniel was a man of prayer so i often tell my parents you you did this when i became ordained as a minister like you you called us into being um but the hebrew of it means god is god is my judge and that's always had a severity to it that i wasn't sure how to navigate but then when i moved to new haven and met you sam uh it was my first time experiencing others telling me that i was um was black i'd never experienced that before because my father is you know we're Trinidadian. So dad is Chinese and Portuguese, a real blend. And mom is um, African heritage mixed with indigenous Arawak, native Indian heritage and Scottish. Like it's a real blend of things. So when I moved to Canada, I was a Canadian mixed girl. And when I moved to the States, I learned for the first time or heard for the first time, this thing called the drop rule. You have got a drop of black in you. You must be so that was very, it, it was odd and strange, but something lovely that came out of it was um, others started calling out the beauty of my second name, Ayana, and it it has many meanings. The ones that I really enjoy, one is eternal blossom. So one that keeps blooming again and again, beautiful flower. And the other with a Sanskrit heritage is one with big eyes who is able to perceive. Isn't that lovely? Wow. So it's a, they're both namesakes I try to live into in various ways. Um, but I, I, I I delight in them because I think there are big ambitions in both names. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I want to go back to your name, but actually I want to go back further to what struck me in that story is that it was in the U S that you became black because in the U S all we can do is black and white. All mm-hmm. we can do is this or that. That that in Canada, they're, somehow they can hold a nuance. You come to the U.S. and we can't do that. We can't, we can't accurately see this myriad. But where where this to me is how I think of patriarchy. Not that there's not patriarchy in Canada. You could talk mm-hmm. to me about that. Mm-hmm. But this absolute um hierarchy and uh, definition my definition of patriarchy is the death culture mm. so it's very simple 
It's very uh, rudimentary, is very ignorant. That's it. So you're, you have to pick one, cut the drop, pick one and get in there. And that's it. And that's mm -hmm. not when you're saying that's not your experience in Canada. No, and it and it wasn't everywhere in the states. It was just my first time encountering it from some. So I, I like being moderate in that from some. Um, but yeah, in Canada, where I call home, and I have for the past thirty years, and my home of origin in Trinidad and Tobago, where there's just a confluence of people and heritage, ethnocultural and language and religious and all the things, socioeconomic, you know, all the good, all, all the things that make up interesting, vibrant communities. Um, there's a sense in which I think we intentionally try, maybe try with more intention to see one another and understand the complexity. I think one of the beautiful things about the way we tend to operate collectively in Canada is with a posture to seek to understand before telling. Mm. I I carry that as a Canadian. I think many of us in the sort of like the spirit of curiosity. It started in the mid 70s with a multicultural act from our then prime minister. Um, and people started started being curious about what would be the three D's about dress, dining, and dance as a way of understanding, oh, this is what it means to be Ukrainian or Polish or um, Iranian or whatever have you, Trinidadian. And we got to a place where we realized, I think collectively with those beautiful celebrations, that there is more than those three Ds and coming to celebrate and appreciate and be aware of and accepting of other of others from ourselves. And I have witnessed in my years here as a Canadian, the the maturation of us moving away from including those three Ds, but transcending and including, as Richard War says, right? Taking mm -hmm. it beyond to better understand more around what it's like in the complexity of family households and the complexity of um, matriarchal and more patriarchal cultures and, and what that means and what it means to be a second and a third generation person now uh, within a particular cultural group, ethnocultural group. Um, and then we started marrying each other and started having babies. <laughs> you know? And I, I mean, I'm a product of that. So it's, it's never been a surprise to me. I mean, I have a Chinese father and a black mother. Like it's, it, it's a thing. It's a thing. But <laughs> I, I delight now that we can't walk down the street without seeing beautiful mixed heritage couples, um, men and men, women and women, you know, days and days. It's all good. Like it's beautiful. It's all happening. And uh, it just makes me smile. I look at my family photos. It's like we're a Benetton commercial, you know, from the, from the eighties. <laughs> uh, yes, you are. And that beautiful too. <laughs> God, I just, I just think it's fabulous. I really do. And I, back to your point around, um, I think you're making a point around, uh, there are some who are only able to hold dualistic frames, either or. Yeah. Sam, I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, I started getting an introduction to this, the sophistication of this, again, back in New Haven, where we would talk about the space in between, the liminality. And if the patriarchy is really about a death culture, I, as I'm saying it out loud now, I think I, I think I believe this, that the spaces in between tend to be the spaces where there is a life culture, mm. right? And the spaces of of, of of friction, of collision, of what we perceive as other, you know, coming coming to 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 meet. It's in those places of meeting, right? The in between spaces, um, where I think uh, 
you can find generative generative um insight ideas connection relationships family i mean that at least that's what my story has been right when you you step out in vulnerability and you step into a place that may be uncomfortable or an idea that may be uncomfortable or something that you thought was something you would never try right and it's it's life-giving it's it's generative anyways i put that idea out there i'm not sure what you think about that i'd love to hear what you think about that yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I went right to an image of uh, the the flowers that come up through the pavement, through the cracks. So when you were talking mm. about the space between, I saw crack <laughs> as, mm. as a crack in the sidewalk where you have the pavement and the restriction and up. Amazingly, these things grow mm. up and out and through. And I also uh, just resonate with that word generative that you used. I feel like generative is a beautiful synonym for me for fertility. When mm-hmm. I talk about fertility, I'm not talking about my ovaries. I could, <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> so, so much bigger than that, but something generative. And actually tell me again, the first definition of your name, not the Sanskrit. Oh, Ayana, it means um, beautiful flower or eternal blossom. Okay. Eternal yes eternal blossom so i am really interested in the part of your story when you be the eternal blossom would be fertility because the thing about for anything fertile anything generative and what you're talking about what can actually come out of the friction is that it's not um linear it doesn't grow and then die and fade and it's gone like the earth itself it's cyclical it's continuous there is such a thing as an eternal blossom Right. Mm. That's an actuality in the natural world. It's not a conception. It's not a fantasy. It's not magical realism. There is the eternal blossom. And we see that in the natural world all the time. You, Mm. in my mind, and I could be wrong about your story, because I think it's been a while since I heard this story. And actually, maybe you'll take us somewhere else than what I remember. Mm -hmm. You becoming that or being more of that version of yourself, to me, is claiming that uh, well, a complex identity, you're talking about that, but coming into an identity of like wholeness, fullness, constant creativity, but that didn't come without hardship, difficulty at us. Mm-hmm. When, when for you, do you, was there a moment that you mm-hmm. felt like you stepped into that generative eternal blossoming experience more fully? Let's say you knew it was there, but really more fully. And began to feel its effects. Because I should say, now you, what you're going to think about it, keep thinking about it, say something, because pe- people don't know you, and I'll introduce you this way too, but you are one of the most alive people that I've ever met. And that's not just now, that goes back to when we were together in graduate school. And by alive, uh, really energetic, engaged, awake present mm-hmm. and you're continuing to be that in your work you didn't you know fall off the wagon and go down the water slide and <laughs> get caught up <laughs> in the currents you still are so i know this is part of your uh, you know you you, uh, you why you're here to be but but for you was there a moment where you felt yes. like you became more alive more awake more generative yes more yes. yes yes again and again and again 
uh, I love these inflection points just, and I can share a few of them. So one was, um, when I was 17 and I was in my university, first university degree undergrad, and I took that summer and traveled with an organization to central Guatemala. And we spent two months together. Um, I was young, awake, very precocious and wanted to figure out the purpose and meaning of my life. <laughs> I thought I would figure it out. So I put my hand up to go and experience a different part of the world to see what, what could be awakened. And I met a mentor there. His name is David Skeen. And David, oh, I told him, David, I'm impatient. I really want to ensure that I'm using my life to the best way. So there was this um, um, implicit generative zeal in me, right? I, I really came into this world having a sense that this was all gift and I really need to get on with it. Some might call it ambition. I had a sense of, of creative urgency, probably, right? That there's lots to see, lots of pieces for me to put together. David slowed me down at the tender age of 17 or so <laughs> and, and said to me, you know, I could see I can see, Danielle Ayana, that you, you're curious about passion. Passion is what the world gives to you that lights you up, that you really want to name your purpose. What will you contribute to the world and give back to the world? And he said, but remember, there's a third P, and that's the P of pain. You have to pay attention to what breaks your heart open, because that will be the source from which whatever actions you choose to give to the world will be sustainable and be truly, truly from a heart place. So that was a very profound lesson at a young age that has caused me to take a constructive beat, you know, every now and again, as I stay awake with purpose and passion and hunger for life, but then also deeply connected to what is breaking my heart open that um, commands my response, my engagement, my engagement. It was the beginning of my call to theology and inevitably to ministry within the church. Because when I slowed down, what was breaking my heart open was a sense of um, the loss that I felt, maybe the, 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 the affliction that I felt when I observed others, others and myself, not being able through a variety of circumstances or choice, living into their best, best lives, their best selves. And so how might I be a part of it? It's probably just a very fancy way I wanted to help folks, but you know, not necessarily just folks at the individual level, but I wanted to help the system, Sam. Like how do we help reconstruct the system, right? We talk about, you talked about, um, uh, feminism as being like, you know, liberation. Like, yeah, that's what I wanted to be about. How might I be an agent of change and liberation? So that was, you know, eternal blossom moment number one. Eternal blossom moment number two came a few years later when I turned down medical school um, and put my hand up to go to theology school and met you there. Um, and that was massive because of the firstborn of an immigrant family and firstborn of all the cousins, mm. there was this sense in which um, there were things I should do and things that I wasn't expected to do. And so the should do was, you know, get a profession where you can hang your own shingle. That was going to be medicine for me. Um, and instead I, I said, no, thank you. And wanted to go and study because my brain was lit up by the questions that is this conversation, Sam, it still lights, lights me up head to toe, you know, the questions of meaning and purpose and existentialism and, you know, uh, philosophy, religion, how we, how we construct all of this to create better societies. 
Um, and so, so I went to New Haven, my dad drove me down in our Ford Aerostar van <laughs> and left my mother behind in Ontario, um, by her choosing. Uh, and then I, I did three years and I had a parent who would not communicate with me because this was not the choice or the path that I should have taken. Um, so all to say that blooming, I think also in its own right can be painful. You know, if I step into like the, if I would be empathetic and sort of like through a sanctified imagination, step into the bud of a, of, of a magnolia flower or something, right. To like to, to peel open and break open those petals that that's got it. It takes effort. It takes energy. You know, it, it, it's, it's every woman who's ever birthed a child and, and their body has to, their anatomy has to shift to bring forth. So there, there, there's, there's pain. There's, um, there's my own sense of, of birthing, I suppose, in a generative way. Um, so the pain of, of working through that relationship that was fractured, but I had to choose and I made a choice uh, for, for, not only myself, but what I thought was, what I still sense today was vocation. It was a, you know, vocation, vocare. It's like the, the, the voice in within me that wasn't of me, that was calling me to do this. And I said yes to that. And that had a cost. Mm. Um, it had a cost. The beauty is it was a cost for a season, not a lifetime. And you know, my mom and I continue to like work on the the us that is created between she and I. Um, but the the beauty has been has been the life that has come out of that decision to to go to that community and grow up. So many, so many moments. I could keep going. I could keep going. When I was there in New Haven, uh, 9-11 happened. Do you remember that sound? Kind and of that, yeah, something had, yeah. Something happened. <laughs> it was it was the start of my third year at grad school, and I had the privilege of being a McGee fellow and sort of like a pseudo chaplain at the university that year. So on that day, all of the chaplains from all of the denominations and faith groups were gathered in Reverend Dr. Street's office as the university chaplain for a meet and greet. And the cell phone started going off and Reverend Dr. Streets pulled aside with his Blackberry and came back. He said that he didn't know what was going on, but he blessed us and commissioned us. He said, your communities need you now. And by the time I got to the top of the hill for the Divinity School, the second plane was coming through the tower. And then uh, four days later, I was with a chaplaincy team from Yale down at Ground Zero for a few days. Um, and I came back to New Haven and spent a year in my own little way, trying to facilitate um, healing and learning between some of the major traditions on campus. And that just concretized for me that um, I needed to stay awake to your point and keep on, keep on keeping on um, and to say yes to say yes to faith communities that could take on, would take on the mantle of doing this um, blend of healing and liberation and community reconciling work. And that's when I made the decision to get ordained within the Protestant church here in Canada. Seems like a non sequitur, but tell me what feminism means to you. I think it's both an individual and collective state of being and becoming 
where where we say yes to the fullness of of humanity um our bodies our emotions our souls our heads our hands and we say yes the way that mary said yes in the scriptures with absolute abandon and humble a humble not knowing uh yeah, stepping in with beauty to all that life might be. I think it's a state of being and becoming that mm. is retains an openness to what might be. I hold that frame perhaps because I think the shadow of patriarchy is is counter to what I just said. I think the shadow of patriarchy is is not about openness. It is about it is about constraint versus expansion. Mm-hmm. I think it's about telling versus being curious i think it is about pieces of our humanity and not the fullness of our humanity so i feel like feminism maybe another way of articulating it is to say that a, a fem feminism is um an antidote to the patriarchal um constructs of limitation and constriction versus expansion and powerful beauty yeah. Yes. Yes. I love it. I don't want to stop oh. you. I love it. That's brilliant. Fantastic. Amen. I agree. A state of being, both simultaneously, it is a being and becoming, and being about the full humanity, our full humanity, everybody's full humanity. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm a convert. <laughs> I'm coming. Where's your church? Oh. That's a good question. Where's your church? Where's your church? So thinking about, I mean, the thing to me is what's been fascinating, both with the Fertile Feminist, with the podcast and with the work of the Sacred Order of the Great Mother is that people are saying, who are listening as well as being part of that community are saying to me, oh, I I thought I was just having a personal problem. Mm. I realized that what I was dealing with was this whole system, you know, where I'm coming to think of, for example, I don't even know if we'll have time to talk about this, but people have talked to me about really wanting to address uh, how we understand the power and fertility of a woman who chooses not to have children. Okay. Which Mm -hmm. you are an extremely fertile woman who chose not to have a child come out of your, as my 14 year old says, coochie hole, um, which doesn't make you not, not a an embodied mother maternal being i know i love these teenagers um <laughs> but uh but okay rewind my thought process so what people are saying to me i didn't understand that everything from that choice to that guilt or shame about something i didn't even realize i was choosing or not choosing is has been framed by this uh system that this sea that i'm swimming inside of and mm-hmm. that we have, we, our growth, our becoming aspect in feminism happens as we hit up against those, as your, your mentor told you, those pain moments mm-hmm. are actually what brings the lotus flower, our eternal blossoming up. So really those, those times to me, um, and I don't want to do any injustice to your story about what happened to you when in, or you in your ministry as mm-hmm. the Reverend Doctor. 
Um, but those moments where we really go, oh, I'm not just dealing with individual people. For example, my my terrible ex-husband, you know, he's not just an individual person. He is, uh, I'm going to get really religious, which I know nobody else on the podcast will like, but you will appreciate. Um, we war not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. So this is a line from scripture. We, we aren't dealing just with, he's the jerk. And this guy in the church is the jerk. And that guy's, we're dealing with, um, the energy of patriarchy and how it's being articulated through individual people, but that's not them. Um, they're, they're being the expression of that. So I feel like you have come up against a real embodiment mm -hmm. of patriarchy expressed through individual people, but still that, that power principality you met. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. face to face and so now I'm making a lot of allusions to a story that's yours but maybe you'll tell a little bit about that absolutely, that absolutely. any sense I'm sorry for that ramble it is it's not a ramble it's it's you're hitting the nail on the head it's very articulate and accurate I in saying yes to ordination um, which is a community, a communal act. So in order to become a minister of the church in the Protestant church, you got to get all your, all your letters in order, right? All your academics, da, 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 da. But then there's a process by which um, the community needs to affirm that they see the skills, gifts, calling within you. It's a communal act. No one, no one ordains themselves in it. Maybe you can get on the internet these days. I, I, I really don't know what that's about. But, uh, <laughs> but in, funny, yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. But in the, in, the, in the heritage of the church, it, it is it is a communal act, just as baptism is, just as funerals are, are acts of community. So, so, so some kind people who love me placed their hands upon me in the ecosystem of the church, and I made vows. I, I got wed in many ways to to the church as a vehicle to make to activate systematic and systems change. That was my yes. I believed, I believe, I still believe that faith communities, um, religious Muslim communities, religious Jewish communities, religious Christian communities, communities of people who share common beliefs and values um, have the agency, the ability to act, to, to, to diagnose and see the pain points in the world and to respond. And so... I said yes to that. And I I also said yes to being a leader of those communities. So a public faith leader where this was never to be just about just about individual personal quests mm. for change, but always about the collective. Um, and because I said yes to that, I also in many ways that day got wed to an institution. Mm. And this institution has legacy. Principalities and power certainly has legacy. And um, I'm just talking collectively now about the church, right? It comes out of, of folks who have made decisions to, to structure their faith so that power can be collected and then disseminated, oftentimes over and against others. So even knowing that history, I really wanted to be a part of reforming that for what was becoming within the church. And so I had lovely years of active ministry working in congregations, leading and, and serving, coming alongside others who share the same ambition. 
Um, but Sam, you know, there was a difference when you're in your early 20s and it's very sexy that you've got this multi-heritage, educated woman of, you know, many colors who who can be the face of the new church. But as the years go on, I kept calling the church to attention. So holding a mirror up to her, here are the isms of racism and sexism and classism and patriarchy. And you tell me that this isn't who you are, but I see it in your structures. I see it in who is excluded. I see it in who is not welcomed. I see it in who has access and who is denied access. Come on, church, tell the truth. Mm. Can you not just do that? Tell the truth. Mm. So I got to a place in my active ministry where I was with a particular congregation and I, it felt like all of those, all of those isms I just described came into just, just came into like a hot pot. It was just a fiery ball and my naivete, you know, you don't even realize how many layers of naivete you have, but began to shed and shed again. And I realized I, to your point, I wasn't up against individuals. I was up against this institutional lack of um, change, this institutional resistance to being different, this institutional um, pushback against actually maturing and living into their self-claimed purpose, right? Like they, they, <laughs> there was a choice to stay immature mm. rather than to be brave and have the conversations and do the work, the intrinsic work mm. of being different than we were yesterday. Mm. Mm. So tomorrow is always going to look the same if you don't change who you are, right? You're going to continue yeah. and perpetuate. So I, I had, I came up against that resistance and, um, I, I carried with me an image, which is also a biblical image of being like a reed on the side of a riverbank, you know, where Moses was put into, put into the waters. And to how might I remain strong as this river, as this river reed, this like cattail, if you will, remain strong, but also be flexible. And I realized that this process, I was being bent and I could be bent and I could be bruised for the sake of a mission, not a mission, a mandate and a vision that I that I believe I shared with the church to make difference in people's lives. So I was willing to be bent and bruised, but the institution came down heavy and I really sensed they wanted to break me. Mm. And that's where, that's the moment when I needed to choose for my own eternal blossoming, mm. eternal blossoming to say this, I will not be broken. I will not be broken. My flower, my generative self needs to be exercised in another context. Mm. This context is not ready for me. Mm. They're not ready yet. Um, so I stepped away from congregational ministry about four and a half years ago. Mm. And it was a blend of the three Ps, trying to re-articulate my, my true purpose just to rearticulate it, because I know my vocation. I realized that my that my professional container could change, mm-hmm. but my core purpose and passions and pains were still there. So I never lost the the core essence of who I am. I'm actually quite delighted in some ways that um, I had enough personal readiness to be able to see the institution and the powers in action, and enough sense of call it. Um, uh, yeah, readiness, personal resilience, be able to say, I will walk, walk away. Mm. The same thing happened when I went to New Haven and I walked toward New Haven, even though that was painful. 
Hmm. And now I was walking away, not knowing what I was walking into. So that, that ambiguity is probably like, you know, the feminist in me, right. Walking, not knowing what I was walking into, but knowing that there was fullness of life on the other side. Hmm. So I did a mic drop in the church and um, in the congregational church, have my faith, have my relationships within personal relationships within. And now I get to exercise my understanding of the complex system within a discipline called organizational effectiveness. Mm. And so um, I get to be part of the leadership team um, of an organization called STRAD. So think strategy and leadership kind of meet, right? So there's generative life and the in-between. And we get to work with leaders who are very principled, who are ambitious, who believe in change within their organizations, call it corporate or not-for-profit, um, government, et cetera, et cetera, who believe in change and who are willing to do the people-centered work of activating that change. And so we pull on you know, questions of culture, of strategy, of um, collaboration, of multi-constituent conversation, um, of, of ways of ways that people do their work together. Um, all of those systems pieces come together to help these leaders do good change in their organizations. Um, the really sexy part, I would say, or maybe the full circle piece of all of this is, is that I continue to every day, you know, walk with a question in my mind of how, how do the, how do the skills and gifts I have now, how might they be a blessing to the church? Like that calling still hasn't left me. Um, and these days I get to support the, the denomination with uh, some good strategy partnership and hold, again, hold the mirror up to them about who they are and who they might be, um, but do it from a safe place. And a, and a different strategic place, not the vulnerability of the congregation. Um, so yeah, that's that's lotus flower stuff for sure. And lotus flower, <laughs> yes. Up from the muck. Up from the muck. And and that safe place part you put in at the end, I think, is is pretty powerful. And I just want to emphasize and underline it that your um resilience but also walking away is a power move mm -hmm. a power move because we cannot engage our power if we don't feel safe and so that's one of the things to me about being a fertile feminist or being in your fertility you don't grow you do not grow when you are scared it's mm -hmm. just not possible and we can't really operate in the fullness of our gifts when we're in that place so to to it's never a retreat it's never a retreat. It's a, um, that walking away again, you know, really to redefine it for everybody, whether they're in, in ministry, in a relationship, in a work position, in a friendship, whatever it is mm -hmm. uh, to, to flip it on his head and say that that walking away is a power move. Cause once you're inside the safety, then if you want to give, give your love, you know, for me, I can, I can pray love and forgiveness for the situations I've been in with individuals who had harmed me, but I'm not in them. You know, so you get out of the house that's on fire mm -hmm. and um, and then you can operate in, in some of your power and some of your gifts. So that's important to me to just sort of highlight the safety. And then there was another piece um, that feels really important that you said, which is about people doing their work. You said the church people really have to do their work. 
even subtly, uh, carrying on a patriarchal, racist, sexist culture. I've talked about this before in the podcast. We go, oh, right, where is my inhumanity to other women? Mm-hmm. Where is my racism? Do How do I respond when I get on an elevator with a black man? Mm-hmm. How do I respond? Uh, do I respond the same way as with a white man? Even the white men are the most violent creatures on the planet. And, and they are the shooters in every massive shooting we've had in this country. How am I responding differently? So uh, those are just a couple samples, right? We could go on and on. But that kind of work, it needs to be done on the institutional level. It needs to be on the personal level. And everything we do for it, in my experience, liberates us. So liberation theology, the actual fertility is like, if I'm participating in any level of oppression, that's it's it's also oppressing me, right? There's no life. There's no, I've talked about this image before of the garden, but you don't get to have a, a toxic dump site and then a beautiful little circle in the middle with your fertile little garden. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, the ecosystem doesn't operate that way, does it? Mm-hmm. It doesn't operate that way because the roots of the earth and the soil are all connected. So mm-hmm. my cleaning up the toxic dump site of uh, even the mental atmosphere, for example, in that church that I was in, um, mm-hmm. is what allows me to grow. So I think you could probably say more of what you meant by work, but that's where I go with it. And I think it's... Um, I think it's a key ingredient, especially for those of us who deeply, deeply long to be more awake, fertile, present, feminist, and for and, and for the work of humanity. What I've come to know, Sam, is that there is no there is no one framework. There is no one graphic on Pinterest. <laughs> there is no one, you know, image that that's that can truly sum up um, the complexity of this um but i will you know if if i could i want to like build on on a little bit on what you said maybe a couple of things like one i just think that there's a real difference between um these days we have such a culture of acquisition like we want to acquire and collect and take in things and i think we do that also with well we definitely do that with things material things we also do that with information right we take in and somehow there's this fa- fallacy that like if we if we know more it immediately means that we're woke more does that make sense it's like we're able to cite yes. yeah we're able to yes. cite certain things about about others um races genders etc um then somehow it means that we are you know more more awake so th- there's a fallacy there that, that from collectors we go to we go to understanding I get really curious about what are the mechanisms to move from, you do need awareness, knowledge, you know, to, to, to question oneself, question oneself, but there's a pathway from that through the journey of meaning making and sense making. And my, my wondering Sam is, I don't know where people, where we, where we individually and collectively learn or raise those attributes and capabilities within, within ourselves. Like, Mm. I I don't know where that's happening. And I'm not sure that we have a shared 
call it like, you know, at the nation level, or even within like the primary school classroom level of how we facilitate one another in moving from acquisition of knowledge to like meaning making. And I'm not talking about, it feels like we were able to go from acquisition to opinion making, but mm-hmm. if I'm, I'm only intuiting here, I'm not really sure exactly what I'm saying. There's no science that I'm aware of behind this. Like I'm just intuiting out here with you. Like, to, to sense-making and meaning-making, which I think involves a process. And this takes us, right um, because I'm spending time with you, I'm like thinking about a lot of grad school frames, but takes us through a process of orientation, being aware, to like disorientation, breaking it open, deconstructing it, looking at the constitutive parts of the system, including self, right. and then making this um, purposeful, purposeful, um, choosing. So there's like meaningful autonomy that's necessary to reconstruct, reorient those pieces in a way that, that, that individually collectively say, this is who I am. This is who we are like, and that muscle, that muscle, which I think is what's necessary for sense-making and meaning-making is something that I wonder about a lot. Like how, how, how do we grow that muscle in every citizen? How do we grow that muscle within every every young human <laughs> that's coming into the world that has come into the world so that we spend less time unlearning that later on in our mature years, right? But we're actually practicing that through the time that we have um, in this, you know, the gift of being on this star. So I, I, I yeah. I'm just talking aloud here, but I, I do wonder about the the capability that needs to be raised collectively in order for us to move from acquisition, orientation to do. When I say the work, I'm talking about that disorientation, deconstruction part of it, pulling the pieces apart and spending the time looking at the constitutive pieces. But I think a lot of where the proverbial brokenness is, is really in in the lack of congruency as doing the work to develop like congruency between the pieces that are available to us. Mm. We're not doing that work. You know why? Cause it's hard. I think there's um, my observation has been that, you know, humans tend to take the path of, of least resistance. That's often where we default to. And so it really is work, meaning it takes energy, fruitful energy, costs something uh, to do that kind of pulling apart. And then the intellectual, physical, emotional, spiritual practice of putting it back together in a way that we can, with conviction, conviction, claim and name that this is a different or possibly a better way in service Mm. of the common good. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up. I think uh, we could talk for a long time. Well, you and I could always talk for a long time, but this is very fascinating. I don't know if I got to all the places I wanted to get to um, because there's so much, but I really am so grateful for your insight, for your wisdom, for your articulation, and for your use of language. I love listening to you. I love the words that you use and engage. I feel like they, um, they make things come into relief they make things three-dimensional they all of a sudden take you know whatever that woven cloth is that's so flat that give it texture so your your words and the way that you speak really powerful to me I'm, I'm very grateful and 
anything else that you want to on your mind, on your heart, share uh, with me and those who are listening. Uh, <laughs> it's a question that throws me to deep humility because it's what is it that I have to say that really may help another? I don't know. Um, what's coming up for me is an encouragement is I do this work with whoever may be listening and with you, Sam, an encouragement to um, practice loving yourself and doing the work as an exercise of love mm-hmm. for the sake of a world that we love. Mm-hmm for the sake of the creatures and planet and soils and sky and humanity that we love. Yeah. That if we, yeah, my encouragement is to take this practice as an act of love, generative love. Mm -hmm. And let's be curious with one another and aligned with one another about how that might take form in new expressions for a better tomorrow, a different tomorrow. Mm-hmm. perhaps it's a benediction yes a blessing it is i receive it yeah yeah so thank you for this holy ground Digital. i'm so happy i've got everything but um do you want to say do you want to say in your voice how people can find you just like a little snippet um sure find you because you're not just you're doing your uh, you're doing your corporate work but you're also doing personal work aren't you doing coaching okay so tell us tell us how to how to we want to find you we want to be you we want to spend time with you we want to find you (laughs) i appreciate (laughs) that so yes in the corporate construct you can find us at www.stradstrad Dot ca and we do lovely work with leaders and teams helping them unlock their potential for change and then to do work with me in the construct of um, a personal coach or advisor i'm at monogramleadership.com so that's all about how you might write your own signature your own voice mm. on the leadership of your life.com thank that's you beautiful. really great work this is awesome i'm gonna go back and listen to even more of your podcast thanks for listening in this is me sam wild aka the fertile feminist and you've been listening to the fertile feminist podcast find me on youtube at the samantha wild aka the fertile feminist and hit the website the samanthawild.com for all kinds of resources inspirations and ideas also on instagram at the fertile feminist until next week may you tap into that native abundance creativity fruitfulness and life force that's going to help us all bring about that more beautiful world that we know is possible